From a wide range of embroidery classes to talks and special events, Royal School of Needlework's International Summer School offers so much. Immerse yourself in the world of the RSN with its world-renowned tuition and treat yourself to this Festival of Stitch in July and August 2024. The Royal School of Needlework is offering four ways to get involved this year. You can join the International Summer School on-site at Hampton Court Palace and at the Royal School of Needlework Durham in the UK, as well as Lexington, Kentucky in the United States of America. There are also online classes available live so students can join in anywhere from around the world. There's a wonderful variety of techniques to explore for those who are starting out on their hand embroidery journey all the way through to advanced stitches. So whether you want to follow a kit-based design, explore your own creativity using your own materials in a more contemporary way, or focus on developing your personal design skills, there will be a class that appeals to you. The Royal School of Needlework International Summer School classes will provide experienced stitchers with an opportunity to engage in a longer or more advanced project while allowing those newer to the world of hand embroidery to try a shorter course to build and develop their skills. The full list of classes and more information about the Royal School of Needlework International Summer School is available at royal-needlework.org.uk with special offers for booking multiple classes and an early bird booking price available until the 29th of February 2024. Whether you're planning on attending in person, online, or a combination of the two, this is a fantastic opportunity to improve your stitching skills from one of the best schools in the world. Welcome to Needle Exchange, conversations on the art of thread. Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Needle Exchange. Today I'm talking with Emma Humant. Emma, also known as the Maker's Mark, is a needlepoint designer and craft connector. Her book, Needlepoint, a modern stitch dictionary, has over a hundred creative stitch types and is a terrific addition to your stitching library. Very recommended. Emma's always been crafty, but it was about 10 years ago when her passion for needlework intersected with her experience as a photography agent, and the Maker's Marks brand was born. Since then, as well as creating designs that hit that sweet spot of modern nostalgia, Emma's been an advocate for contemporary needlework and for the value of creative collaboration. I've known Emma since the early days, and we have a great chat that covers topics like licensing, how to make good craft books and our shared passion for the kids show bluey hope you enjoy the show i've got some notes somewhere so go on then so tell me tell me about bluey then come on because we, we can talk an hour about bluey i tell you I, I love it no my friend amanda got me into it and she just said it was just an absolute pure piece of joy and that i should watch it and i am like deep into bluey now i'm i've got it in my calendar when the new episodes are coming onto Disney Plus. Do you remember when uh you what your first episode was? I oh, well I started from the beginning because it was oh. all on Disney Plus, you see. So it, it wasn't like randomly jumping into Bluey. It was like I chronologically went through it. Alright, my first episode was Grannies. <gasps> and I saw that favorite. and I was like, what's going on there? My favourite episode is Sleepy Time. I don't know if you've okay. seen that one. Yeah, you seen that one? 
it hits yeah. you hard uh because so so this is the thing right before like when we first met christ knows when that was yeah. like a decade ago or whatever i didn't have any kids i, I was emotionally was 15 years ago, 15 years ago. Mm. shit um I was just emotionally bereft or emotionally numb and just a bonehead and all that, you know. Now you become a parent and it unlocks all this stuff. So now I watch Sleepy Time and because yeah. there's that bit where it's like rousing music of like Hulse Planet Suite and like, I'll always love you, even if I'm away. And I'm just sitting there and I'm just like, that's so nice. And I've watched it about 20 times and every time the kids are just like, Daddy, should we watch Sleepy Time? I'm like, no, I don't need to cry right now. <laughs> but that's what happens. And then uh apologies to anybody listening um i they've come out in australia and i yeah. use technological solutions to make sure that i could watch them in australia and possibly nice. even download them in australia so i have seen all of them the last <gasps> one uh what was it season three episode 48 with rusty playing cricket came out about three weeks ago and that was the last one for a long time now but they're so they so good there's one called onesies which will come yeah. out over here at some oh, point. And it's about like, <laughs> so Bingo and Bluey get given some onesies by their auntie, Chili's sister. And the onesies, uh, when Bingo wears hers, it turns her into a cheetah and she goes a bit mad and she's always like yeah. a leopard and stuff. And Bluey wants to wear that one, but her mum's like, you know, it just doesn't fit you. And sometimes when things just don't fit you, you have to learn to deal with that. But this is also a story that they're talking about uh, Chili's sister, who clearly wants to have kids, can't have kids. That's why oh. she doesn't see the family very often. So there's this bit where she's like lying on the ground looking at Bingo playing, and they put that over, and you're just like, oh my God, I've just gone again. It's, this is the thing about Bluey. Seven. I think people think, oh, it's just a kids' show. And it's like, no, it really Jesus gets you in the feels. Sometimes it's like pure joy and yeah. just you're in hysterics. And other times, yeah, like it properly gets you. I've got so many parenting tips from it. There's one called Flat Pack where they're have you seen Flat Pack? They're building a garden swing and yes. at the same time they managed to chart the whole story of evolution from like tiny fish all the way through to future scenarios and it's a metaphor for how we consider our own existence mm. and when we return back to our own like inheritance and stuff and again you're just like oh my god. I'm just <laughs> waiting for people young. to like write their theses on They Louis. will, won't they? <laughs> Well, they will for sure. I could probably do it. I probably should do it. Amazing. So, you think we 15 years? I think it's been about 15 years, yeah. When did we first meet? Uh, we met at one of the stitching shows. I think it was Olympia. So that already dates it cuz they don't do it at Olympia anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were um, on the table. Were you doing the book? Were you doing book stuff? I just yeah, have a memory so I was... of us having a meeting in a restaurant talking about book stuff. We did. So I was a photographer's agent and I worked a lot in publishing. Yeah. So you were, it was while you were doing your first book. So whenever your first book came out. 2011? Yeah. 2012, maybe? Maybe earlier yeah, than that. 2010, maybe. actually, I think. Push Dictionary, available on Amazon. It's out of stock. Yeah, it's a good book. It's yeah. a good book. So yeah, we chatted about that. And, and you then were like. You, me, and there were two other people went to a restaurant and we were chatting about books and magazines and it was just when Molly Makes had first come out. That might so have been... Who, um, it was Perry Savvy Lewis, maybe. Oh, Charlie Morby, yeah. Because obviously yes. she was the editor of Cross Stitcher at the time. Yep. Shout out to Charlie. 
and oh, I can't remember the other name. There was a, there was another girl. She brought out lots of books, and she used to write craft stuff for the Guardian. But I can't remember her name. Perry Lewis. Perry, Perry Lewis. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, who yeah. now does mastered? She's the CEO of that. Look how far we've all come. Look how completely different we are. Some people will look back on that uh, that meeting as the beginning of something. Yeah. I've forgotten it, so clearly I'm not looking back on it like that or something. But wow. And you weren't even, you were like craft adjacent. Not to say that you weren't a crafter, but you mean you yeah. weren't, were you think you weren't even thinking about being Maker's Mark, then were you? No, I wasn't. No, I, I'd always stitched. My mum taught me how to um, do needlepoint and cross stitch when I was about six years old. Hmm. So I'd always been stitching. But at that point, I was just buying everyone's kits and not doing any of my own stuff. And then is and it that, fair to say you discovered Emily Peacock and that definitely changed something? It did. It woke something up in me really a little bit because I think I'd got to a point where you there's only so many pictures of kittens you can do mm. and flowery patterns. And then I saw Emily's kits and it was like a little light bulb going off in my head really. I was like, oh, it can be different. You can have typography and amazing colours, and it was just really inspiring. Her work was such a such a kind of rocket ship out amongst all the other very very boring kits that were out there. Um, so it kind of got me thinking differently. And I had an illustrator friend of mine, Ollie Frapp, who did beautiful typography pieces, and I contacted him and said, "Oh, can we work on something together?" And that was just a bit of fun. That wasn't with a view to kind of do anything with it. So I started working on that with him. And then Emily, bless her, was like, oh, you should do this. You should kind of make mm-hmm. kits and things. And I was like, oh, yeah, that would be lovely. And then just pushed that thought deep down inside me and didn't revisit it for probably like 10 years or so. Yeah. And then what made you revisit it? What was the tipping point? It was, it was being at another knit and stitch event. It was really weird. So I... The years before, I had been helping Emily out on her stand at another one of those events. All of those events, those events seem to be like the catalysts of everything, don't they? <laughs> um, so I was helping her at her stand. A woman came and chatted to us and she was talking about her life as a scientist and how actually she really loved doing uh, needlepoint and cross stitch and actually you know she maybe she should start going into that and I sat there and I cheerleaded her along with Emily like yeah you should totally do that if that's what your heart's Mm -hmm. telling you should do you should do it so I gave all this advice to someone else (laughs) should have been listening to it for myself and then fast forward years and that woman came up and spoke to us and said I don't know if you remember this conversation and it was Emma from Anne's Orchard yeah (laughs) potato scientist legend she (laughs) taken all of that stuff on board um and kind of gone off and done this and it just I just looked at it and I just thought oh I'm a little bit jealous like I wish I wish (laughs) I'd done that yeah and I thought actually maybe now is the time and then Emily gave me a massive kick up the arse as she's so good at doing so I just thought right now now's the time I've got to stop making excuses Mm. so I started noodling about with ideas I had um, one idea in particular that I really wanted to do which was a take on the fortune teller fish I just my I I realized that my brain saw things in needlepoint like I see pictures and go 
oh, that would look amazing. And it kind of puts it through a needlepoint filter, I guess. So I contacted the um, the parent company who has made Fortune Teller Fish for like over 100 years. Mm-hmm. And I think they thought I was like a crazy craft lunatic. And um, they gave me permission. They were like, yeah, go for it, crazy craft lady. Yeah. <laughs> we'll so never I, hear from her again. <laughs> exactly, that mad lady. Um, and I think that kind of, you know, their permission kind of gave me a bigger kind of universal permission to actually do it so I started designing that and never stopped since how uh so when you started it's quite hard when you start a thing isn't it because you can look back now and go I can see how far I've come but did you know where Mm -hmm. you were at when you started did you know what your flavor was going to be because you consumed a lot and you've seen people like Emily and you've seen you know you know what good stuff looks like and I think that was the thing with Emily was hers was like it's not necessarily a breath of fresh air it was like a breath breath of good air it was like she was taking tradition and making it good again which people had sort of given up on doing so did you know where you were at where you started I think so a little bit I I a lot of my influences at the time I was in a, a kind of creative business group called the Indie Roller Coaster um and I'd made a lot of friends through there who were illustrators and different types of creatives and we all had a certain sort of vibe um I think you know birds of a feather flock together really so we all like similar sort of clothes and a lot of us dyed our hair pink (laughs) and it was kind of like you you find your tribe so we all had a kind of similar aesthetic and things as well and I think that influenced me a little bit and my design eye started to emerge from that really. So a lot of my early collaborations are with people from that group. Um, and it, it kind of dictated a little bit what I like and what I was happy to show that I like as well. So very eighties, nineties, nostalgia vibes. Mm. And um, yeah, I think pr- pretty much what I was designing at the start is the sort of vibe that I'm still designing now, except mm. now there's a lot more, decorative stitches that come into play yeah we'll get to the decorative stitches in a bit that's interesting though isn't it because it's it is there's been a theme I mean whenever you've done a pattern for x stitch the game-changing cross stitch magazine um there has there's been that like happy nostalgia like that kind of familiarity and I think that always plays well in a weird way it's kind of what people are doing when they do Morris Miners isn't it it's like a modern happy nostalgia like we said before like done well though like done quite nicely um the other curious thing I always think about you though is you and I are quite similar I think because like I started out as a designer I didn't call myself a designer now personally Mm -hmm. because I don't put in the effort but you're more than that and as we said you know you gave Emma Pavia loads of advice you've always been that person you're always doing these other side projects so you're not just a designer it's more like you're a sort of enabler or I'm sure once I heard a thing called like an animateur you're an animateur because you just get other people going as much as anything. That seems to be yeah. quite intrinsic to you. Yeah, I think that's I think that's years of being an agent and going to um, photography college and stuff as well. We were very, um, it was drilled into us to cheerlead each other and support each other and share work. And I'm a very good puzzle solver. I like puzzle solving and I think I see people and their ideas in that way they're puzzles to be solved so if I see something that someone could be doing I tell them I you know you don't I don't I wouldn't just sit there and say nothing 
and go, oh, they can all fail. I want mm. I want everyone to be enjoying themselves and um, making the most out of their creativity and stuff. And I, I, I know how to get people to that place. So, you know, I, I was an excellent agent when I was an agent. I was very good at helping people find their path and find their way. And I still like to do that. I can't help myself. Yeah, it's um, interesting because you're you came out with a good strong brand when you started and it feels to me like that's something that, like sometimes people miss like what like from your experience what are the things that people they go oh I want to be a cross stitch designer or I want to be a needlepoint designer or I just want to be a craft you know a craft retailer in some respect where do you think yeah. people what are the simple mistakes people make do you know what I see so often is people changing their brand names right that I see that a lot like so often um they'll they'll come out with something and it'll be I don't know it'll be it'll be a half thought that they had at the beginning and actually as they start to develop it doesn't represent them anymore Mm. they change and they either become their name whereas before they were you know whiskers and kittens or something like that you know it's always something and something isn't it (laughs) so many brand names are something and something (laughs) um and the, the things that they identified with at the start are not what they identify with now. And so they're like, oh, well, I'm just going to be Joe Bloggs Studio now or Joe Bloggs Designs. Or, yeah, I think that seems to be the thing. I don't think people spend the time getting to the heart of what they love about why they're doing it. Mm. Like for me, I, I think- really put a lot of thought into that. I want, I really thought about what, what I was doing it for, what I wanted from it. Um, the name, the Maker's Marks, comes from my want to collaborate with people. It's, and it's not everything. It's not every single one of my designs is a collaboration, but I'd say it's about 50-50. But I love collaborating with other creatives. I think you get some really gorgeous results when you've got different creative brains meeting on a project. And so the Maker's Marks was about my mark making and designers that I work with, you know, illustrators that I work with, and the customers as well the people who buy my kits and so all all three of us kind of become part of the making of the one thing so it was like everyone's marks together and that was something I thought about a lot at the beginning and it's it stayed intrinsic to what I'm about but I yeah, I think that's the thing I think don't people don't drill down to what they're doing it for yeah they just come out and go I'm going to make these patterns do you think people realize like one of the things I've realized in the 500 years I've been doing this now is you kind of have to get all the skills as well. And that's what's quite painful is you don't realize you can go, oh, I like cross stitch. I'm going to make some patterns and bang them out on Etsy. Yeah. But you've got to, I think you've got to be unnaive. What's the word? I don't know. You can't be naive about it because you are going to have to learn to do admin, finance, marketing. Yeah, it's blah, a blah, lot blah, of blah. hat wearing. It's a lot of multidiscipline hat wearing. And I think that, yeah, I think that it would probably put most people off (laughs) if they thought about that too much at the beginning. And I think that's probably why you see a lot of designers and, and kind of uh, kit makers popping up and then disappearing again. You know, their Etsy shops suddenly go on indefinite hiatus because it's a lot and it gets really overwhelming. Um, I find that quite sad. Sometimes I'll go back and edit an old post from Mr. X stitch from like 2011 and go, Oh, like yeah. they're not there anymore or a little while I mean, ago i found someone it was someone the guy who was in featured in the first issue of x stitch craft in 1980 he passed away i was like oh that's a shame <laughs> but yeah you're right and i think the thing is is people 
you have to love it. I always think about yeah. stand-up comedians are like successful because stand-up comedian is the only thing they could do. And so it's what they do. It's like a drive in yeah. them. And I think it has to be kind of similar. You've got to love the process of what you're doing because you're going to be in it for the rest of your life if you're lucky. And I think I think it can be very isolating as well sometimes. I think I think creative people generally need other creative people. We feed off the energy of each other. And actually I think when you can set up a business it can be very very lonely. And actually you need a community. Yeah. And I think a lot if a lot of those people had had a community kind of of like-minded people around them because I think that's the important thing. I think you need people with the same problems that they're coming up against, the same hurdles. And I think if they had potentially had community around them a bit more, then then maybe they would still be going. Do you find that you... I get this with Mary, where I'll try and explain... She'll be like, what have you been up to today? And I'll try and explain it to her, and she'll get a glazed look in her eyes about three seconds <laughs> because I'm talking about, like, email marketing or I'm talking about, like, you know doing some design work I think that's the thing isn't it you need people who can go oh yeah I do actually know what you mean yeah just to to like triangulate your own position sometimes yeah definitely yeah definitely it's super important it's something that I've always known was important and I think having gone through the art school process um and and being used to workshopping ideas and stuff I, I miss when I don't have that sort of thing last year um myself and Emily Peacock created a group called Albion mm-hmm. it's the Good name yeah it, it's I can't remember what it all stands for Emily went completely wild on it it's like the outstanding league of the amazing league of independent okay. some things I just didn't something. thought it meant you were all English there is that as well <laughs> right, it, okay, yeah. it, it's about it's about uh needlepoint design coming out of this country but um yeah she has a she has attached words to each letter to make us sound like superheroes right (laughs) that would explain the wearing your pants on the outside as well I saw that does it all make sense to you now yeah Yeah, it does yeah (laughs) um so we we set up that group uh for for that we wanted community we wanted to be able to share problems with each other and cheer each other on and we have um a constant chat thread going and it can be really boring stuff that we talk about, like new suppliers for for printing or, you know, stupid little things, you know, codes for sending stuff abroad. But it's just being able to talk to someone else who's in that same weird mm. niche bubble as yourself is is so brilliant. It's weird as well, particularly, I think you and I are both lucky in that we've got pseudonyms so you can slightly hide yourself behind them. But when yeah. you are like the brand and then you've got followers on Instagram or a Facebook page then they get this false version of you don't you and sometimes you need that place I did an email newsletter a little while ago where it's just like oh things a bit crap at the moment and you need to be able to say that and I wouldn't say it to like public facing it was like an Mm -hmm. almost an internal thing but you need to be able to be honest don't you because you can't get by on bluster yeah safe spaces Mm. you need them and then you've also got our common thread as well so that that actually folded our common thread. It was one of the reasons we set up the group, really, in, in replacement. But our common thread was a, a global group set up by the amazing Jenny Henry and Brooke Shout Alexander. Out to Jenny. Shout um, out to Brooke. Yeah, Brooke McGowan from Thorne Alexander, sorry. And yeah, they were brilliant. Um, 
brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Brought people from the UK, from Ireland, Australia, Canada, America, Portugal. It brought lots of different people together. And that was exciting to see what people were doing in different countries. But it almost became too big for them to manage, really, mm. alongside everything else. So that group disappeared. So we needed something in, in place of it. But maybe that's part of the thing. Maybe when you've got a global group, you know, like, so one of my observations about the needlecraft sector is that, you know, you get big companies and they're catering to the whole world at once. So they have to kind of just go down the middle of the road because that's a road that everyone's driving on. They can't really, because of the way they're set up, they can't have these unique flavors or vernaculars that they need and sometimes it's the same with these kind of groups isn't it because like you say you want to be able to talk about the challenges of brexit and how it impacts your ability to ship goods abroad and people in america aren't going to be savvy to that so it's almost like it's no disrespect to that but sometimes you do need to like drill down those things don't you to get better value yeah and i think i think i think as good as groups are the bigger they get the more complicated they get as well um they have to be kind of so, formalised, isn't it? You almost have to like go, right, everyone's got five minutes because otherwise we're going to be here all yeah, day. exactly. It gets a bit woolly otherwise. Yeah. We had a thing in roller derby because I used to be involved in roller derby. In fact, yeah, when, <laughs> when we knew each other. Yeah, I remember. Um, and yeah, that was kind of like we did a tournament once with like six teams one year called the End of the World Series, which is brilliant. Then we did a slightly larger one. And then around the time that I left and these two facts aren't connected, but it, it started getting bigger and it was almost like then they were having like divisions and stuff like that. And that was almost too much for the infrastructure to handle because yeah. it was like teams could compete, but then other ones couldn't. And suddenly there were like barriers to entry and all of those sorts of things. And then it sort of defeats the object of what it's trying to achieve in the first place. Yeah. I don't know where the tipping point is there really, but um, let's talk about your, yeah. So you said you've been a crafter for as long as you can remember. Right. Tell me about your crafty childhood and stuff. So I was a super hyperactive kid. And like now when you're a super hyperactive adult. I know. But (laughs) but I'm calmer now than I was then. Can you imagine the nightmare I was as a child? You would have picked on me, I'm sure. Oh, I wouldn't. No, I was super nice. Like I was everyone's friend. I was a really nice kid, but I just had too much energy. Mm -hmm. Um so I so I was a super hyperactive kid, but also had a heart condition. So oh. it was not a very good combination. Is so, that like a reset button? Like if you got too excited, you just have to shut yeah. down for a little bit. Yeah. Well, wow. it did actually because hilariously, because my heart used to run too fast. I had an extra electrical pathway on it. Wow. So um so yeah, they did have to basically I won't go into detail because it's it doesn't sound very pleasant, but it was basically like a heart reboot anytime I had an attack. So my mum to try and chill me out would give me craft kits and she used to do a lot she used to stitch a lot of the ermine kits and she had lots of case facet books around the house so I grew up with those as kind of my picture books and I just loved it because as well as being super hyperactive I am an absolute perfectionist and I like to get stuff done so there with the kit it, it was a purpose and there was a thing to do so I would just sit and quite merrily stitch Hmm. And I've seen my early stitching. It is amazing. I was good. Perfect stitch tension at age seven. (laughs) But like you say, then you can finish it, which sometimes is, that's the satisfaction, isn't it? And I think that's always been one of the things, like from a mental health standpoint, that's good about stitching is you can chalk up lots of wins. If you finish a section of colour, you can go, I finished that. 
that's a successful goal achieved. And and I remember when I was researching the book, it was it was quite funny to understand that and go, yeah, you know, every single stitch can be classed as a win. But yeah. also you can go, I finished a thing rather than the endless drift of whatever. Quite yeah, the, the satisfaction of that is absolutely brilliant. But also it's escapism as well, isn't it? You You switch off your brain a little bit. You've got something to focus in on. So all the noise disappears, the external noise disappears, and you focus and breathe with what you're doing, which is hugely beneficial. Do you still do a lot of stitching yourself now? Yeah. I'm never not stitching. So if I'm not working on one of the many different designs that I'm working on for new collection stuff, I have what I call my stitch holidays, where I buy other people's kits and then I stitch those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And nice. that's time off for me. I'm like, oh, lovely. Who uh, who are the designers that you buy kits from at the moment? Who's floating your boat? Um, at the moment, I've got two Emily Peacock kits on the go. I've got her Agatha Christie with Appletons. So I'm a massive mm. Agatha Christie fan. And I'm also doing the ridiculously large trapeze design from her book. And I've got a Hannah Bass Blooming Marvellous kit. Mm, and that is waiting to, to be stitched that is the next one on my stitch list i think hannah and... is my only official whip in that i'm doing an amsterdam kit that i bought for her that will soon be celebrating its 10th birthday so i really need to get nice. it finished well they take as long as they take sometimes you get through them quickly and sometimes they sit there like an old friend waiting for you to pick it up again for five minutes and that's <laughs> fine there is no shame in that um, and before that, I was doing the Art Deco Diver by Thread and Mercury, which is beautiful. Mm. It's got gorgeous colours on it. Really, really lovely. Yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? Are there people that you like who do quite small ones? Because I feel like one of the kind of one of the challenges in the department of the curiosities is its scale. So it's quite yeah. big. Yeah, I think most of us try and do small kits now as well. I think historically in this country, it's all been very cushion heavy. It's all mm. been pieces that you would imagine would finish into a cushion. Although we're having a big conversation at the moment about finishing items into different things. And that's something that they're all over in the States, but actually we're not very good at encouraging people to do here. So we're all making a big push at the moment to change that. Whether what it's things? Well, like little kits. So I'm wearing today one of the earring kits that I've got. So I've got three different earring kits that feature a decorative stitch. And then you stitch them and it's a pair of earrings. Or um, in the book, everything that's in the book, there's 10 projects in the book, they all finish into different things. So Mm. there's a plant holder, there's a bookmark, there's there's a, actually the plant holder, I've seen people in the States stitch that piece and then turn it into a bag. Mm. Because there's a lot of acrylic bags you can get that are really good for putting needlepoint panels in. You've got a glass hold, glasses holder. You've got a purse. Glasses, yeah. You've got one in a floating frame. A zip pouch, yes. Framing Pencil things. Pencil pot. Pencil pot, yes. If you let's talk if about you, the book. You can stitch it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the book. Tell me, how did the book come to be? So, with a view to try and make myself a little bit more regular on my Instagram account. I thought I needed a regular feature and it coincided with me becoming dangerously obsessed with decorative stitches 
and the variety thereof. And also it was something that people weren't really talking about over here. Mm, um, yeah. You know, we're used to our needlepoint kits, which we used to call tapestry kits, being that cr- kind of simple half a cross stitch. Tent stitch? Which, pardon? Do you call it a tent stitch? I mean, tent you've got stitch, all the names yeah. now, so I'm just checking that I'm correct. Yeah, the, the tent stitch, continental, and basket weave all look the same from the front, but they're worked slightly differently. The mechanics of them, um, as you go in and out of the canvas, but from the top, they're all the same. So they're all a half cross stitch, but they're just worked slightly differently. Um, so that's what we used to do, and that's great. And a lot of people still stitch like that. But I started to see a lot of the decorative stitches that a lot of designers and stitchers were using in the states. And I loved the look of them. I loved the texture and the playing that you can do with different areas and, you know, emulating different shapes and sheens on items. So I started dabbling with those and I thought, well, why don't I start sharing the ones that I'm finding and having a go at? So I created Stitch Mondays, which is the hashtag. And every Monday I share a different needlepoint stitch. And I haven't run out yet. There are thousands of them. It's crazy. So I started doing that and I do them in kind of fresh, bright colours, which appeals to people. So it's a bit of a stitchy sweet shop. And a publisher saw them, had been thinking about doing an idea of doing some sort of needlepoint Bible. And then they contacted me and said, do you want to do it with us? And low needlepoint a modern stitch directory, over a hundred creative stitches and techniques for tapestry and embroidery was born. And I memorized yeah. that title. I'm definitely not holding the book in my hands and reading it. Definitely. Yeah, it's, yeah. An, it's a lovely book. Like it's, you know, it's been a while. It's taken me a while to get to see it. There are many things I love about it. Shall I tell you what I love? Yes. Uh, I love tell the different the colors. Nice I, love, I love the design. Yeah. I love the, uh, the splodges. It's a lot of yeah, splodges. splodges. Was that your good. choice? Uh, that was me and the art director. Yeah, splodges are good, and the splodges have got sufficient variety that you don't, you're not going to go, oh, that was very 2022 splodges, you know, because there's always a risk of that, isn't there? Yeah. Um, I like the variety of stitches. I like the use of typography because I'm nerdy like that. Um, I also think it functions really, really well as a technical manual because I think the yeah. thing is, is, with my own book, Mr. X Stitch Guide to uh, Cross Stitch, available from Amazon and all good charity shops, um, you, a cross stitch book and a pattern has to be a technical manual. It has to be a thing that people follow. And I've seen plenty yeah. of examples where these things have gone wrong. I can think of two classic examples. And do you know what? I'm going to name check them because Ooh. sod it. There was one called Ed Hardy Cross Stitch. Ed Hardy, excellent tattoo designer. Yeah. And there yeah, was recently yeah. one called Cross Stitch Like a Queen. And the problem is, these are both fantastic ideas for books, but the book companies don't get people who do cross-stitch to help yeah. them make the books, and so they fail as technical manuals. Like cross-stitch yeah. as a queen, I was really angry about because a brilliant opportunity to do like drag culture-inspired cross-stitch, and the book fails as a cross-stitch book because the patterns yeah. are poorly thought out, the legends are poorly done. So it, it's not a technical manual at all. It's just a missed opportunity. I think as well people don't, People think about how they process information and they don't stop to think that other people might process information in a different way mm. because pe- people learn in lots of different ways. You have people who learn from looking, people who learn from listening, people who learn from reading, and those brain processes are all completely different. 
And so it's really important to cover all bases for people so that you're not excluding anyone or trying not to exclude anyone in the enjoyment and the learning from your book. And it is essentially, it's a reference book. So it was really important that each of the stitches in there had a a picture of what the stitch actually looked like, which as far as I know, you that's not really very common at all in stitch mm. books. Baffles me. They yeah. go, they, you know, they rely on the chart. They rely on a graphic, which mm. is fine to a certain extent. And that's important to have. But I think if you're making choices about what you want to put on your canvas, you want to see the texture. You want to see what it looks like in tapestry wool. So we had the colored pictures. We had a colored graph and written instructions as well. And I've had loads of compliments about that because it's accessible. Yeah. And the pictures are really big. And I think the thing is, again, there's always that risk where people do decorative stitches where they think I need to, yeah, I don't know. They'll put 20 on a page and they'll sacrifice the scale and the detail. Whereas you've got one on a page and you can see yeah. it stitched and you can see the illustration. And like you say, you can see the instructions and the typography looks sound. And yeah. I think, I think that's the thing. And there's been a few like Bible books that I've read lately. There was a, there's one called Hooktionary by someone called Brenda KB Anderson, which is lots of like mm-hmm. intarsia crochet patterns. Um, and and yeah, they they need to function as a successful reference book, like you say. And I mean, you've smashed it. You've smashed it on this one. Thank you. It's, it's done a great job. And I think that's quite a nice legacy. It's the same with my book. You know, if I never do another book again, I don't really mind because I've done the Mystery X Stitch Guides Cross Stitch available from Amazon and all good charity shops. And <laughs> if I never do another book again, I'm pretty happy. It, when you were doing I the really book. I really want to you... do another book though. Do you? Yeah. What's the next one then? Well, I want to do another one with more stitches in because I've got right. tons more that I want to play around with. But I want one that focuses more on how you make choices. Hmm. Like, so you would look at a canvas and and to try and help people get a bit of confidence on how to make the choices for certain areas. Interesting. And I want to drill down into that. I mean, because one of the things you said actually was um, the like the sheen of the stitches, and I think mm-hmm. the interesting thing with decorative stitches is they provide texture and they give yeah. you the opportunity to create form on flatness. Yeah, which is exciting, and I don't think people think about that. I think when you've just been doing tent stitches for such a long time, you're used to just the colouring in element, and you don't think about the texture so much because it it's about keeping it nice and and flat and neat. Whereas actually there's a lot you can do with playing with the texture and also having bits of naked canvas as well. I'm a real big fan of Mm. stitches that are a bit more open. So you see bits of the canvas poking through and that works really well if you've got painted or printed canvases and you can play with the colours there as well. I think that's really good fun. I think once people start to have a bit of a play with that stuff, it actually becomes quite addictive and it's quite fun to bring some of your own creativity to a kit. It's another way that stitchers can put their own spin on something. You could have 10 people doing the same kit, but if they're all doing different decorative stitches, the finished piece will look wildly different. And that's quite exciting. I think that's quite a lovely enabling thing for them to bring their own creativity to it. It gives them I get an a lot opportunity. of people sliding into my DMs asking me for stitch recommendations on stuff as well, which I love. Which is one of the best ways of people sliding into anyone's DMs anyway. Hey, baby, yeah, that's, I'm that's looking for a decorative want. stitch to achieve a tree-like structure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I love that because that's the thing is like when you start out stitching, 
it's quite easy to just follow patterns. You need to, to wrap your head around it, to follow yeah, patterns. Totally. But after a while, if you get that yearning to make your own art, take it in your own direction, then these are quite quick wins, aren't they? Yeah. And it definitely. just sets people off down a path. Yeah, completely. And I think it's it's a nice thing when you are, you know, if you're part of like a stitch club, mm-hmm. it's quite a nice thing to go to your stitch club with the book and start encouraging other people to do the same thing who are maybe a little bit earlier on in the journey. I think it's it's a nice like, oh, look what I tried out. Have you given this one a go yet? It just, it there's something kind of quite communal about it, I think. I got a lot of value for the while when I was living in Milton Keynes and I used to go to the Embroiderers Guild meetings because I learned stuff I wouldn't have sought to learn. Mm. And I think that's where you evolve in new directions, isn't it? If you go and yeah. do stuff you never thought you'd try and do before. And again, your book affords that opportunity, doesn't it? Yeah, I get loads of comments on Instagram where people are like, oh, that's really interesting, that stitch. I've never seen that one before. I'm going to go off and try it. And it's, yeah, I think it's it's the encouragement. You kind of sometimes need to see it to do it. Is there so a sort of quite- a flow to the stitches? Like, so when you, like when you were planning the book or when you were doing your Stitch Mondays, yeah. Did you start with one and then that led you to another and that led you to another? Or did you then go and look in a reference book from like the 1950s and jam in something sideways? Or No, I didn't. I I didn't pull out any old books. Uh, it's more things that I've seen over time that I've bookmarked going, oh, I've got to try that at some point. And the in terms of what I share on Instagram, I try not to have too many similar stitches at a time so I try and across the month have a little bit of variety and in the book I wanted to make sure like all the basics were in there so you've got the three different types of tent stitch and you've got cross stitch and I wanted to build up to the the more kind of blousy road stitches and things like that but it was basically ones that I really liked that gave enough variety in a hundred stitches does that mean the next book will be ones as well you invented a stitch I'm fancy. Yeah, I invented the Rhodes Cloud Stitch. Mm, Tell us about it. So the Rhodes Stitches work in a kind of clockwise sort of layering effect. So you get a really, really 3D stitch. So you can have Rhodes Octagons that look like little raised dots and Rhodes Hearts. And I was doing a project for the book with a cloud and I thought, oh, I could use some of the Rhodes Stitches. And then I started doing two Rhodes Octagons and then made a fan shape in the middle and realised I'd invented a totally new stitch. Exciting. It is fancy. Very exciting. I was going to say, do you have any favourite stitches? I'm guessing the one you invented is up there. Yeah, no, that's definitely up there. It's definitely up there because I was so proud of myself and also (laughs) suddenly realised, oh, you can invent stitches. That's exciting. Is it true you have to tell the king that you've invented a new stitch? That's the officially registered. Mm. But you have to send it via peacock. (laughs) <laughs> nice. it's really and not emily peacock any other peacock yeah no other peacocks yeah <laughs> no you, you have to send it via emily peacock she's the <laughs> gatekeeper <laughs> why she's so busy all the time um yeah no it's you just kind of invent it and tell people any other uh any other hidden gem stitches stitches that people ought to try because i really be. love woven stitch the woven plat stitch that's really gorgeous that's in the book it gives, as you would imagine, a woven effect. And it you get a lot of coverage quite quickly, so it's very satisfying. It covers a big area quite quickly. 
gives a lot of texture. I'm using it on the cardigan bit of Agatha Christie and it looks mm. amazing. Mm. Um, there's also a stitch called Callum stitch that when you stitch it, it looks like knitting. Okay. That's and that's fine. really clever. Because I think there's something about is sometimes like when you make a pattern and stuff, sometimes it has to be nice for people to make, not the stitching, mm -hmm. but just the sense of completion, the sense of achievement. And I think that's that thing. There'll be some stitches that seem quite simple, but when you make them, you're like, ah, oh, that's a really nice thing that I've just made think, at that I, point. I think all of all of them, bizarrely, apart from possibly David's stitch, because that, that's really big and it loops under a lot of stuff, but they're all pretty simple. And I think because they look quite intimidating, because especially things like the road stitches, because they look super complicated and they're very big. But because everything's worked on a grid, it's really easy to work out. So similarly to when you're doing Bargello and you kind of have a holding line and then the rest of the pattern just flows really easily. It's the same thing with decorative stitches. Once you've got the foundation of a stitch in or a line of the stitches in, it's really easy just to, to whip through them quite quickly. So actually, even though it's super intimidating, I teach beginners classes and I can I teach things like the road stitches that look really scary. But actually, once you've started doing it and you realize, oh, yeah, OK, it goes there. And then it just leads on to the next bit, onto the next bit. By the end of it, everyone thinks they're a needlepoint genius, which they are. <laughs> which they are. Yeah. I was just thinking about um, how in lace making they had little songs that they would sing that would go mm. along with the rhythm of making the lace. And I kind of wonder whether you end up with little tunes going through your head when you're making some of these, because there's a certain, you know, presumably when you do some of the stitches, you have to do them in the same order to get the same effect. So you're always yeah. doing these little, it's not as much like cross stitch can be quite mindless, can't it? Straight there, yeah. straight back and that sort of thing. So I'd imagine these can be a bit more circular. Yeah, they are a little bit more circular, but I, I think you go, it's the same thing. You go into a muscle memory with it, really. Once you've repeated it a few times, I think you just start stitching it without thinking, really. Yeah, and it's it just, five hours later. Yeah, exactly. You've suddenly got a massive cushion. But yeah, it just, it just, it falls into place. It's weird how quickly your body kind of syncs up with it. Hmm. Yeah, I always liked lace makers because I thought they were very good at what I called it localized throwing because <laughs> a really good lace maker can just chuck a bobbin about a quarter of an inch, you know, with accuracy yeah. and you'd see them go fly and it'd be like well, 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 with their fingers. It was, it was quite good. Do you feel yeah. a sense, because that's interesting then, because you said you didn't really look back at old reference books, but I always feel like when you make a bible -y type book like this, you are yeah. drawing a mark in a historical context. Yeah, and I mean there were there is there is a history of needlepoint in the book, and I talk about that stuff. I mean, like tent stitch is called tent stitch because it was found on Egyptian tents that the that the pharaohs and their slaves were making. So you know, needlepoint is is as old as civilization. So you can't help but draw on the history of it. And mm. the thing is, with a lot of textiles and a lot of history of textiles, is that it is perishable. And written records are perishable. So the origins of an awful lot of the history of textile-based things are, are vanished. Mm. So we don't know necessarily who first ever stitched the first tent stitch or who came up with the first ever cross stitch. Mm. We don't know these things. 
And, you, you know, when you talk about the history of needlepoint, and I do mention it slightly in the book, it does become very Western in terms of its history and its recording. And it was taught in schools in the 1600s. And it, it the, the catalogue that we have of samplers and uh, pieces that were recorded and saved tend to be things that have been recorded here and saved and put in museums but potentially there is an awful lot in other civilizations and across other countries and things that was it was happening before us that we just don't know of so it's really difficult to talk about the history of needlepoint and be accurate because you know it's been around for thousands of years and yet weirdly it's still got a longer more visible history than a lot of stuff like digital yeah. photography all we need is yeah. one massive electronic wave and all of that goes you know it's yeah that's the thing that's funny isn't it because yeah we never know the true history but weirdly it gives us more of a sense of history than many other crafts yeah i mean it is it is mad that the oldest recording of a needlepoint stitch is from egyptian tombs mm. that's yeah. that's crap that's crazy. It's crazy. your melon, isn't it? Because to me, I remember, I think I was I was at the Ashmolean Museum many, many years ago. And I remember looking at like some, I think they were Chinese silk embroidery, some like 935 BC or mm. something or other, and just being like, huh. I'm like, I'm in that context now. It's kind of weird to just go. Yeah, hmm. I, I think when you work in textile crafts as well, it, it really is, it really is, it's old. <laughs> it's yeah. so old we needed clothes you know we you have creatures and fur and fluff and natural materials and the oldest kind of recorded needles were bone based mm. you know, antler based bones and things like that so it's it's something that's been needed for a long time so it, it has, has the most ridiculously long history and it stands to reason that somewhere down the line people would have stitched things and then somebody would have gone Hmm. <laughs> just that yeah. just that and gone hmm I could stitch that a little bit nicer and so it goes yeah. you know and then suddenly they've done some kind of embellishment that... yeah I think I think there will have been a tipping point where it function was left behind and decoration became more important mm. and that's when that you tipping kind of... point now but that's another yeah. social conversation <laughs> and that's kind of where you, where you start getting kind of our stuff starts to emerge a bit more I was having a conversation recently about um, endangered craft and we were talking mm -hmm. about coracle making, which is something that is at risk of being an extinct craft. And the Heritage Arts Council talk about extinct crafts as being there's mm -hmm. nobody left to pass that information on to anybody else. So they have this register and they have some crafts where it is like critically endangered. So there might be like 10 people in the country that are doing it and sharing it, you know, and it, it gets like that. Coracle making is one of these ones, particularly the Irish version of it, that is at risk of becoming extinct. And coracles are like these little boats that people used to use to get across the water. So not ships, yeah. but just like little round boats. And it turns out that they're like massively critical to the way that the spice trade worked and the way that people established communities in other countries, um, I don't know, 5,000, 10,000 years ago. And then you think it's got to this point now where nobody can be bothered to like teach it and make them because what's the point and then yeah. I was thinking you look at places like Machu Picchu and you look at these like ancient civilizations that have vanished and everyone's like I wonder what went on there then 
and they probably had all this stuff and then people yeah. stopped doing it and and it almost feels like we're going through that situation now again where people are losing the crafts that define their history so they're losing that sense of history and then at some point we implode in our own I don't know stupidity it's it's weird isn't it because I think crafts a lot of people see crafts as like a frivolous hobby mm. it's like a frivolous it's a silly thing to do crafts but actually it's intrinsic to who we are as human beings mm. it's and I think that I think that's why it's not just you know the the health benefits of crafts are, are tenfold and when you sit down and make something with your hands you you instantly physically feel better and it's brilliant for your mental well-being and I don't I think it's not just because of kind of repeat action and the calming element of that and how repeat action matches with your breathing and your breathing starts to slow I think there is something intrinsically in our DNA that calls back to times gone by that it's such a fundamental part of who we are as human beings but we don't really acknowledge that you know, our civilization was was moved forward by inventors, by craftspeople, by artisans, and yeah, unfortunately, as as the recording of things and and people passing on skills starts to disappear and things become endangered and you know extinct crafts, we lose touch with that stuff. But actually, when you sit down and start making, maybe we get these little echoes that kind of that come through. I find it odd as well that for some reason people don't associate like cooking and baking and gardening as crafts. Mm. Oh, well, and yet they are. Yeah, yeah it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? Whether it's a marketing exercise or something. But I remember yeah. like back in the days when I was like, I'm going to have a telly program. And, mm. and people were like, no, but Kirsty does crafts. And I was like, oh, right. So mm. that's like saying Jamie Oliver does cooking. And, and yeah, but it was almost like this mindset of going, oh, no, the whole of crafts just needs this one thing. Yeah, yes, everything is a craft, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Making making with your hands—that's important, hmm. and that comes in lots of different forms. Making marks. Yes. The other thing I wanted to ask to go mm-hmm. right back to the start was about you talked about you enjoy collaboration, and I find yeah. it's an interesting one because as a maker, we often unwittingly collaborate with our the people that buy our products. Mm-hmm. Like there's a collaboration there but it's not a very yeah. intrinsic one but I wondered what your observations are on the difference between you making something by yourself and then you collaborating um I, I've got something at the moment where I'm working on a balloon letter alphabet with an illustrator friend of mine called Carla who's Poppykin's illustrations and Every now and then with a design, you kind of hit a brick wall where you've stared at it too long and you can't really even see it properly anymore. And the nice thing with the collaboration is that when I get to that point, I can just send it over to her and go, what do you think? What do you see? And so she'll come back with comments and she'll see see things that I just I am no longer able to see with the piece anymore. Mm. And that's lovely. Is the workshop element. So it kind of clears the fog a little bit and gives me a kickstart. And they're like, right, yeah, okay, cool. And then you go away and you tweak it and adjust it. And then you get the perfect design. And that's that's the bit of the collaboration that I love the most. It's, it's being able to bounce off other people. 
I read a book a little while ago because uh, I like comics. Can't make comics, but I also like reading books about making comics. And there's a guy, mm-hmm. Brian Michael Bendis, who did a book. And he said when he writes a book, he's just writing the book for like one or two people. He's writing it for the artist and maybe someone else who helps there. And sometimes you think, oh, I've got to write a book for 100,000 people or whatever. But it's the the collaboration between the writer and the artist is a critical thing. So how much time do you have to spend getting in sync with a collaborator like what's that bit like because that's like the pre-work work isn't it yeah I suppose so I think I've always thought quite a lot before I've even approached someone so I generally I'll either have seen something that they've done that I desperately want to turn into needlepoint or I'm so aware of their style that I know that what we can create together so I have a really clear idea so that when I approach someone I'm going with a with a real plan in place and obviously there's room within that plan for them to come up with their ideas and them to move things forward so I feel like we're already a little bit in sync by the time that we've started the conversation because like in my head I've already made us best friends Uh, that's what I was gonna say yeah the other person's like hi stranger and you're like oh man I love you and your cats are brilliant and I can't believe that holiday you had and they'll be like wow (laughs) yeah yeah no in my head we're already besties I mean, presumably, I guess, once you, you fine tune, I think as well, is there something about like honest communication? Mm. Yeah, definitely. You've got to be open and honest with those things and show your vulnerabilities and all the rest of it. Um, so, yeah, I, I just I don't know. I find it really easy to talk to people. So I, I've never found any of those sorts of approaches or the starting to work with someone a bit difficult because... Mm. I'm I'm open to whatever ideas that they've got. Uh, I'm really respectful of their work, I hope. Um, so it's always just a really pleasant, lovely thing. And you're not too hung up on yourself that if they criticise your thinking, you're going to be like, throw all your toys out of the pram. Because I think that's part no, of the exactly. issue as well, isn't it? Yeah, no, and I, I you know, generally I'm, I work with people who are really lovely, nice, warm, open, creative people as well. So I have an idea of who they are a little bit in their personalities. So there's generally no surprises. I think from my background being a photographer's agent, I know about licensing. I know about, you know, using someone's work and the right way to go about approaching that stuff. So I think that helps as well, because I think sometimes I think for different artists, if someone approaches you and wants to do a collaboration, I think there can be a lot of fear in that sometimes that you think you're going to be taken advantage of or it's not going to be done in the right way. But I think because I come with an understanding of how the licensing process works, I think that takes a lot of the fear out of it at the beginning for them as well. Can you uh, do licensing process 101 for us? Yes. Please. So, what now? <laughs> yeah, go on. Just off the top of your head, nice and easy. Okay. Uh, so, from okay, so in most countries, and definitely in this country, when anyone has created something, uh, and it and the person is deemed as an artist, so illustrators, uh, singers, musicians, um, anyone who's a creator, an artistic creator, as soon as they have created the something the work is instantly copyrighted. You don't have to fill out any forms. You don't have to register it with anything. It is instantly copyrighted at point of creation. So because of that, someone then can't go and take your work 
and stick it on a t-shirt and then start selling those t-shirts because that is a copyright infringement. If they wanted to do that, they have to approach you and ask for a license to use. And then in that license, you set out a term. So it's either you can say like it's an indefinite term or actually I'm going to make 50 t-shirts with that on. And then the artist says, okay, that's cool. Yes, you can do it. Thumbs up. Or yes, you can do it, but I would like this, this amount of money, please. And then you, you draw all that up and it doesn't even have to be a complicated thing. It just needs to be on a piece of paper. And actually, if you've got an email trail where you both discuss it, you both agree and you both say how much and someone says, yes, if you've got an email trail, that is also binding as well. And, and legally it. enforceable. And don't be a dick. And don't be a dick, basically, is the big thing. <laughs> yeah. But I think you do find it. You do find a lot of um, cross-stitch designers who make designs on pieces that definitely definitely aren't licensed mm. yeah um i suppose as know, well and, the and, wild and, west of etsy is a bit like yeah that, yeah very much so very much so and you know anything that is you know cartoony character based quotes for things you know quotes you really need to seek permission most people will say yes I think a lot of authors, if you want to use like a sentence or some words, will generally just say yes and give you permission. If you don't ask permission, they'll come at you all guns blazing, as they should do. People's likenesses on stuff, that gets used a lot. I mean, how many Frida Carlos do we need to see? <laughs> Jeez Let's Louise, be honest, popular. let the poor woman live, um, live in her, you know, we're waking up her spirit constantly to put her on tea, tea towels, and I don't think that seems fair. Um <laughs> You know, the, the 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 ripping off of people's identity and putting on stuff. I appreciate that there is a, you know, there's a fan element that comes into stuff. And people think that that is a loophole, that if you're doing something fan related, that it's OK. But actually, if they don't like it, they can still come at you. Mm. A lot of stuff, a lot of companies let stuff slide because they don't think it... Uh, it doesn't negatively affect them. But if, if they decide that they don't like it, it can become incredibly costly for you. And I was thinking about, um, you know, because you see designers where other people have riffed off their designs. Thinking about cross-stitch and needlepoint in particular, you know, there'll always be, I know Satsuma Street gets ripped off by people all the time. Yeah. If you're a designer or a maker, like, like so I produce a copy of the magazine. I put it up on Readly. About four days later, it goes up online for free download in about three different places around the world. But yeah. I can't lose any sleep over it because if I did lose mm. sleep over it, it would destroy me, kind of. Do you think yeah. people should just be like, whatever, and know that their core audiences are likely to come to them? I think you should always have like a boilerplate cease and desist. Right. I personally, having worked in... in in that field where I had to protect my photographer's work, I always think you ought to tell people. I think we kind of have a responsibility to educate people that you can't just take an image off Google and use it for whatever you want. Mm -hmm. um, if you're doing something and it's just for personal use, that's okay, um, generally. Uh, but you really ought to ask permission. Uh, if you're doing something and you're commercially selling it, you 100% have to ask permission. Mm. And I just think I just think we've all got a slight responsibility just to stop people. Yeah. If we can, or at least try and at least say, because 
for for all the stuff that you let wash over you and go oh it it's okay I'm just going to ignore it they'll do it to someone else and it will absolutely devastate and ruin their life mm. so sometimes mm. if, it, if it's not a massive deal for you just send it out send out a cease and desist and hopefully and approach you can approach it in a kind way because yes there are assholes out there and there are people who are desperately seeking out to try and take advantage but there are a lot of people who just don't know better and so mm. actually you can try and approach them with kindness and get them to stop and it's a teaching moment and i think that's kind of important and if people want to get a boilerplate cease and desist presumably yeah. googling so easy yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so easy to do, so so easy. And I, I just think it's it's funny, and it's something the 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 likeness of celebrities is one that really sits with me because I saw an article a few years ago from the Frida Kahlo estate where they said that they they find it really upsetting when they see her used commercially, and mm. she is used everywhere on everything mm. constantly all the time, and they as a family find it really distasteful and really upsetting and I don't think people think about that sort of stuff I think they think oh it's someone just in the public domain they're ours and actually there there are people behind them and you know she didn't pass away all that long ago really in the grand scheme of things so she has family around still who knew her who find it upsetting when they see her likeness slapped on a t-shirt used yeah. as a halloween costume a it's cozy yeah it's just it's a bit grisly really when you start thinking about it and there is you know it's nice that people want to pay homage to someone but at the same time yeah. they're not they're not your person <laughs> they're somebody else's person I remember back in the day, like 2009, I was doing some collab stuff with an illustrator, just putting like their embroidery patterns out and she was doing internet memes. So we mm. had some two girls, one cup and all that. And there was a Chuck Norris one. And I remember we got a cease and desist from Chuck Norris's lawyers. And I was like, yeah. whoa, surprise, took it down. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, Chuck Norris. <laughs> I, was just yeah. like, I got punched you in the, the face by the best lawyer. All the time. You know, the woman screaming at the cat. Yeah. It gets used as a meme constantly. And I, I mean, to be fair, she actually finds the whole thing quite funny now. But the reason that she was screaming in that moment is because someone publicly had said to her on a TV show, oh, I know your husband beats you. <laughs> Which he actually was, but they had said it publicly on a TV show trying to blow up her life. So it was an incredibly serious moment. She had a very young child at home as well. Mm. and someone was trying to do it to score points basically on the tv show and people use this as a meme i don't think understanding the context of why she was so angry at the time and it, it fast forward he ended up killing himself and it was the most horrific thing but people use this stuff and consume this stuff on the internet with no permissions taking someone else's likeness doing stuff and just not necessarily understanding the full extent of what they're doing I mean, and it's kind of I mean, it's mental when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like how, how would we feel if someone did that to us? Yeah. When you become a legend and you yeah. don't know why and the reasons are completely askew. Mm. Yeah. It's well, I'm going to pivot the conversation on that. Yeah, it was good though. It's good. I enjoyed <laughs> talking about the um the licensing stuff's interesting because it's like like I've thought about it. I remember when I started out, mm -hmm. I wanted to do like superheroes and stuff, but I was yeah. like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to be able to license Marvel comic stuff because I don't have the yeah. infrastructure. But I like what you were saying about, you know, contacting authors, you yeah. know, and trying to reach out. Would you say it's better to contact 
the author like go via social or something like that and try and get in there first or should you go via a publishing company or I think it's fine to approach people via socials I think if they use their socials a lot um, Mm. and they're quite chatty on there I think that's a good place to start and then they can say to you I'll just contact my agent or you know things like that I think if you go directly to them a lot of the time um, it makes it a simpler process yeah as long as it's not like Stephen King or J.K. Rowling feel like you're probably not going to be uh, that successful. Well, yeah, pe- people like, uh, yeah, her, uh, he, she, she, she who shall not be named, um, are, are part of a bigger thing. So yeah, yeah, it's Warner it, Brothers, it? I think, isn't it? Own, yeah. own pretty much everything. So it's the mm. same as you know, asking for. But in some ways, like you say, I mean, if you if you find someone who's written a book that's, you know that you really love and you can genuinely connect with them and say you've inspired me to want to do this and have that meaningful conversation yeah it probably is and I'm sure there are ways of doing it I think about when people email me and what responds well and what doesn't and Mm. yeah if you can be a bit human and a bit like I love you in a genuine way rather than hi insert name yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I think the personal approach is always good and approaching people with kindness and explaining what it is that you want to do. I think that's that's cool. And you'd be surprised how many people are like super open to it as well. Or, you know, even if you, you know, if you want if you wanted to make kits out of something, but you don't have a huge amount of money, even going to them saying, listen, I don't have a huge amount of money to be able to license something properly, but you know, could I make a donation to a charity that you like, or I can give you 50 quid or, you know, it's something Mm. to show some gesture of, you know, of of appreciating their value and their worth as well, I think is, you know, is a, is a nice way of approaching things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, speaking of authors then, what's your favorite book? (laughs) My favorite book. It's a book that not a lot of people know called all my friends are superheroes by Andrew Uh, Kaufman. I know, I know all my friends are addicts, which is a completely different thing. I think that probably is a very different thing. It's a a little novella. It's absolutely beautiful. It revolves around a love story between two people, but it's interspersed with their friendship group and their acquaintances who are all superheroes. But everyone's superpower is something that is really fundamental to their personality. So if there's someone who is always late for things, they develop like a superpower that is time related. So it's stuff like that. And it's it's really brilliant. It makes you think a lot about your personality. And if you had a superpower based on their set of rules, what your superpower would be. And what would your superpower be? Oh, I think it would be empathy because the superpower kind of has to be a good thing, but it has to be a curse as well. So I think right. I would it would be empathy based, and I think I would I would soak up the emotions of other people. You're not the sort of person who'd who'd be empathetic to things people weren't willing to share. So you'd be like, I know your pain. You'd be like, I don't have any pain. You'd be like, No, I know you do. Yeah, no, I know your pain. No, definitely, it would definitely be stuff like that. It'd be awful. <laughs> it would be dreadful. I always say I've got powers, but they're ironic. I always think that's my power. <laughs> yeah. Just, I, just so I, I highly recommend the book. It's a little, mm. it's a light read, um, but it's beautiful and it speaks to kind of human human nature. And is it like like everyone's got a power, so it's just normal? It's not like, oh, I can leap over a yeah. tree. It'd be like just normal powers and stuff. No, it's normal. Mm. 
one of my favorite superheroes i'm going off on a tangent here mm. uh i recently found out actually he died but he was he was in the x-men and he, he was called forget me not and basically mm. his power was you wouldn't remember him as soon as you stopped looking at him so he'd be there and it's just quite a funny power because yeah. like you'd be in a room with him or he'd walk into a room and everyone would be like who are you and he'd be like I saw you two minutes ago. I'm your best friend. You know, you've known me for yeah. years. And there's all these bits about all these interventions that he did in superhero stories that have gone back yeah. that no one remembers. So they're like, you weren't there. He was like, I totally just did that thing. Yeah. And then the unfortunate thing is he's in like the X-Men story myth. And the way it works at the moment is if people die, they can be brought back to life again. And he sacrifices himself for the greater good. Nobody remembers. Yeah. So they don't oh. even think to bring him back, the poor guy. He's just oh, like instantly forgettable. There's one person, like Professor X and the X-Men, who's like, he's yeah. set a thing in his mind to go, remember Forget-Me-Not every day, <laughs> just to remember him that he's there. He's like, everyone else is just like, I don't remember you. I'm sorry. So he spends his whole life going, hi. That's incredible. That's that, yeah, that's very, that's very on a par with this book. I like You'd it. What like is it called again? All My Friends Are Superheroes by Andrew Kaufman. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, okay, so favorite film, please. Favorite film is that's very difficult. I quite like film franchises. Like, I really like Jurassic Park. I will watch that whenever that is on. I will watch the okay. Jurassic Park films. But probably the one that I've watched the most is How to Make an American Quilt. Oh, wonderful. because it is a beautiful film. Has lots of gorgeous little vignetted love stories in it um has a brilliant soundtrack and it's crafty yeah so it's an excellent one to sit there whilst you're stitching and mm. watch because it's got gra- craft creds too like it have you heard that thing where they took the jurassic park theme tune and extended it to like an hour or whatever no it's on youtube and it's brilliant because it's like such a rousing song anyway and yeah. this it just builds it's just oh, amazing. amazing. You can listen to it. Have it on in the background when you're working. And I'm suddenly have you'll find yourself like, you'll just be elevated and you'll be wine. It'll be this crescendo. Someone's done it and it's so clever. Amazing. Okay. I'm uh, okay. Amazing. And then uh, favorite album slash band? Album is difficult because I don't think I've ever been particularly someone who's ever listened to albums. I'm more okay. in a, of an individual song, eclectic kind of playlist person. Mm. But my most requested stuff on Spotify, mm-hmm. whilst I'm shouting at the robot in my house, is stuff like Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, kind mm. of jazz standard stuff. Mm. Have you ever listened to Roberta Flack? Yes. First time ever I saw your face. Gets me Very good, yeah. Gets yeah. me in the feels. Her yeah, first I love, album, I, love... I got it on vinyl and it was like, I wish I could remember what it's called now, but it's just like, you know, when she's, because the thing with a lot of these people, I think like Ello and that mm-hmm. lot is we see them as old people because they were old people when we were around. So like Roberta yeah. Flack's first album when she's like in her twenties, early Nina Simone, all of that stuff, you know, when they were yeah. like firebrand phenomenal talents, that's the stuff you need to look at. That's the hot shit. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love anything like that. I think is fabulous. Mm, nice. I, I yeah, think it's I do... my, my gran used to listen to a lot of it, and I used to hang out with my gran quite a lot. Yeah, 
I feel like Christmas has to have at least a napkin cold in it at some point, so you know you're there. Oh yeah, for sure. Chestnuts roasting and all that. Yeah, okay, it's then... one of the things I love about old songs being recycled into Christmas adverts. As I can sit there and Shazam them, <laughs> and I'm like, right, that's going on the playlist. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. In fact, here's a pro tip: if you ever want to buy now, that's what I call Christmas. Buy it now in the summer when it's about three quid, because obviously then it goes up. And I do that, and we've got that on vinyl. And I've got a couple of other Christmassy albums on by Ronnie Spector, I think. And I've got mm-hmm. a Motown Christmas album as well. And you just put those on for the year because you feel like the nostalgia is the bit where it all yeah. kind of fits in nicely, doesn't it? I'm not I so do. sure about I that. I do pride myself on my Christmas playlists. Mm. I seem to remember you as well always having some pretty unusual taste in music. I feel like over the years you've thrown some interesting objects out there. Yeah, I always try and give you like the most obscure stuff that I've listened to when you ask for suggestions. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes I really need, because of the collab playlist on every X-Ditch magazine, and then we've got like the mega playlist as well. What's quite mm. funny is I think there's only been like three times when the same songs come up. Because if I add them to the playlist and it's already on there, it tells me. There's only yeah. been like three songs. So, I mean, there's about bloody 15 hours worth of music on there if anyone wants to listen. It's impressive. Uh, right. Last yep. question. What is the most interesting thing that no one really knows about you? Well, this, this, okay, this was kind of interesting. So a lot of people saw me, but no one knew it was me, if that makes sense. Mm. I was part of the Anthony Gormley takeover of the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square. Okay. And it landed, everyone got, you could apply for it and everyone get got two hours and mm. you could stand up there and I think it was I think it was basically no violence no nudity no drinking but other than that you could do whatever you wanted and um I put mine to a vote and I raised money for charity so whichever suggestion got the most amount of money was what I would do so I ended up dressed as where's Wally on the fourth plinth for two hours on the bank holiday August weekend at lunchtime so I had like the prime slot out of all of it and so the amount of tour buses that went past and made me part of the tour for that two hours was hilarious (laughs) and um it was kind of I was interviewed you know photographed put in the archive of the National Portrait Gallery but the most bizarre thing that happened (laughs) is Martin Hanford who was the creator and illustrator of Where's Wally happened to be walking through Trafalgar Square and knew nothing no, of no. him, let alone would ever imagine that I would be stood up there, happened to walk past with his kids. His kids spotted me. So as I was being taken down with a cherry picker, I saw this guy talking to my friend and I thought, okay, and she's bumped into someone she knows. And then by the time I'd come out, having changed and come back out, she said, oh, this guy's giving me his, his email address for you. And I thought, okay, well, that's weird. <laughs> and it turned out it was him. So he was really, he was really touched that I had been up there as, as where's Wally. And um, he got me to email him and his publisher sent me this massive box of like a t-shirt and jigsaw puzzles and books. And he signed this beautiful book for me with a lovely message. And yeah, it was just one of those bizarre, surreal moments. That's amazing. You know, you're in the right place when that stuff happens, right? Yeah, it was a proper universe conspired to, to get us to meet thing it was very cool that no that is I've had a couple of those kind of moments there was one where we were walking along a canal and a boat called Flora pulled up and we were like wouldn't it be funny if a boat called Annie pulled up literally a minute later a boat called Annie pulled up melon twisting 
got a photo of the girls next to them as well. That's and I spent the rest brilliant. of the day, I was just a bit span out. You know, when yeah. you're just like, hmm, hang on, have I just hit a next? Should I play the lottery now? <laughs> yeah, honestly, honestly, that's a great story. Ah, oh, yeah. thanks for sharing that. Um, if people want to find out about you, yes, where should they go? Instagram, really. I'm I'm kind of everywhere, but Instagram is my most active socials. So I'm at the Makers Marks. So make sure you put in both the S's. And I'm on Instagram and every Monday you'll get a new exciting stitch and all the old ones have all been recorded in story highlights and stuff. And my DMs are always open for any stitch-based questions that people want to ask me. And I have people from all around the world send me pictures and ask for help on various bits and pieces. And it is my absolute pleasure to do so because I love to stitch-enable people. And I believe you've also got a email newsletter that people should sign up. To. I do. I have an email newsletter. It's on my website, which again, if you Google the Makers Marks or Emma Homan, um, that pops up. And if you scroll down to the bottom of the front page, you can sign up to my newsletter, which is about to get a super fancy makeover. And if you like the sound of my book, there is a little mm. taster of it on Amazon. And it's it available on all online uh, bookshops across the world thankfully and in september they're bringing out another version of it where they're making a card box so it's a little card pack that is coming out oh yeah i saw that and that was a bloody clever idea well done there really good idea um so 50 of the stitches have been turned into cards so they're quite good if you like stitching on the go i'm a big fan of taking a project out to a cafe or wherever i'm traveling so you can just grab like a couple of cards that you're working on for a project and pop them in your bag genius maneuver that one genius maneuver pretty good isn't it Uh, emma yes thanks for having a needle exchange with me oh you're so welcome Thanks for joining me on another Needle Exchange. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange. That's N-W-E-D-L dot exchange with any thoughts, comments or feedback. And if you want to keep up with all the news, sign up to the Needle Exchange mailing list at bit.ly B-I-T, dot L-Y, forward slash needle exchange. See you next time. Thanks for joining me on another needle exchange i hope you enjoyed the show i'd love to hear from you so feel free to email hello at needle.exchange that's n-w-e-d-l dot exchange with any thoughts comments or feedback and if you want to keep up with all the news sign up to the needle exchange mailing list at bit.ly bit.ly forward slash needle exchange see you next time <laughs>